But immediately, from behind Tash, strong and calm as the summer sea, a voice said, Be gone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place. In the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we're doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. I'm Kel. And thank you for joining us. Just a reminder that today we are talking about the seventh book in the series, The Last Battle, but general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we go on tangents and other stories we enjoy. We'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if there's anything too far out there. But today... We're discussing The Last Battle, Chapter 12, Through the Stable Door. I feel like we've been at this stable for a while, Chase. Like, we have been at the stable for far, far, far too long. We've spent about four chapters on about ten minutes, and it's really... I'm ready. This is, I'm ready. This is like, you know, very typical C.S. Lewis so far, where it's like, a meeting at the stable, in front of the stable, someone's in the stable, going through the stable... How many prepositions of the stable can we get? Like On the other side of the stable. Someone's under the stable. Oh, no. In the stable? Over the stable? Behind? Right? Left? You know. That would be, just get that would be a good questions. children's book. Yeah. Well, that would be you more like, like probably, what, three or four? Yeah. yeah You're old to, to do that, but. We could we could make a last battle themed children's children's book. I mean, boy, could you? Uh, you know, and we'll get into that in a sec. But Chase, sure. I'd love to give you a summary of this chapter. I mean, if you insist, I do because we have to podcast. <laughs> uh, so Jill had gotten caught up watching the fight, but then ran the rest away to the right White Rock. Everyone else on the Narnian side had also turned to retreat to the rock as well, and when they all turned back to look at the battle, they saw a terrible sight. A cowardly soldier was running toward the stable, carrying someone kicking and struggling against him. It was Eustace. Tyrion and the unicorn started to try to help, but they were far they were too far away. Eustace was flung into the stable at the very beginning of the chapter. Crazy. And a line of cavalry soldiers formed between them and the door. There was no reaching it. Now the dwarves were calmly shooting at the Calarmines, saying they wanted to make it clear no one could be in charge of them. They were willing to shoot at both sides, but they didn't consider that the Calarmines had armor. The dwarves had met them in battle, but quickly they saw the Tarkin leading 11 bound dwarves to the stable door. The rest must have already been killed. The, do- the Tarkin said to throw them into the Shrine of Tash and announce them amounts that these also are for a burnt offering to Tash. And then all the soldiers began to chant, Tash, Tash, the great god Tash, because there was no more trying to, you know, pretend there was any Tashland nonsense. Those at the rock watched this happen. They also found a small stream of water coming from a rock that refreshed them. They knew that in all likelihood, each of them would pass through the dreadful door tonight. At this point, it looked more like a mouth. Jill asked if they could do anything to stop it, but Jewel said, nay, because she's a horse. Uh, that door may well be their entrance to Aslan's country, and they would dine at his table when this was over. The Calarmines shouted out that the beast could be taken as prisoners instead of killed, but only got growls in response. They were outnumbered, and the enemies had spears, and spears that were now leveled at them, closing in towards them. And then once again, they were fighting for their lives. Tyrion watches the boar went down as Jewel fought, and somewhere nearby as Jill got pulled away by her hair. It didn't matter anymore. All he could do was fight as long as he could. And he found himself fighting further and further, uh, from the rock and closer to the stable until he realized uh, that it was the Tarkin that he was in combat with and that they were practically in the doorway of the stable. And so he ducked under the Tarkin's blade, tackled him into the stable, shouting, come in and meet Tash yourself. For a moment or two, Tyrion didn't know where he was or even who he was. He was blinking in a strong light, which was definitely not the darkness of the stable he was expecting. He looked over at Rashida Tarkin, and Rashida was pointing and terrified at the figure coming toward them. It was smaller than the creature they had seen from the tower, but it was the same with a it was the same with a vulture's head and four arms. Its eyes blazed and a croaking voice came from its beak. Thou hast called me into Narnia, Rashida Tarkin. Here I am, what hast thou to say? The Tarkin stayed face down and able to respond, and the creature picked him up under one arm and began to look at Tyrion. But immediately, from behind Tash, a calm, clear voice said, Be gone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place. In the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea. 
The hideous creature vanished with the Tarkin still under its arm. Tyrion turned to see who had spoken, and the sight set his heart beating even more. Seven kings and queens with crowns and mail. Seven, you say? That's an odd number. Would have expected more. He began to bow and speak, but the youngest queen laughed, and he realized it was Jill, and the youngest king was Eustace, clean and finely dressed, and somehow changed as the older but not. For a moment, he felt bad that he'd come into their clean presence, covered in blood and dust, but then looked down and realized he was also clean and dressed in his finest clothes, as for a feast at Care Paravel. Jill came forward with a beautiful curtsy and introduced him to Peter, the high king over all Narnia. He stepped forward to kiss Peter's hand, and Peter raised him up and kissed his cheeks, then led, to, led him to uh, meet Lady Polly, the Lord Diggory, King Edmund, and Queen Lucy. Wait a minute, Tyrion asked. Where's Queen Susan? If he had read the Chronicle right, Peter should have two sisters. But he said, Susan's no longer a friend of Narnia, and they reported that she had given up her memories of Narnia for clothes, lipstick, and party invitations. But then they found a fruit tree and started eating that instead, because let's not dwell on Susan. At that moment, Tyrion realized just how weird this adventure was. Weird indeed, because that's where the chapter ends. <laughs> like, we're going to get into this later, but what in the world was Susan? Like, this is always my gripe with this, this book. But... I mean, it's a little bit funny. Just how out of nowhere and unnecessary it is, but it's uh like actually reading that part, like finally coming to it and like seeing how he addresses that. Like you see what he's going for, like on the like theological like thing that he's trying to like give you an example of to like dwell on, but then at the same time, it's so <laughs> unnecessary, like you don't need that. It's so questionable in several, like, it's just, you don't, who, who asked for this? Who said, no like, we really need to like, make sure that kids are thinking about what happens if someone they care about, like walks away from the faith. So yeah. let's just have Susan go, go party it up. No one was going, God, we're tired of Susan. We're tired of her. Like she had two books and that was it. Like, in both of those books, she's solid. Yeah, she's fine. She's the stable one. Yeah. She's but, the older sister, and that's a perfectly fine role to play and can right. be played without having to inherently drift off into clothes, lipstick, and parties. I wonder, if, like, again, we'll get into this later, but because <laughs> we have more to talk about with Susan. But yeah, just such a weird tone for everything. But what also sets a weird tone, Chase? Is at the very beginning of the chapter because if you remember last time, this like big you know fight breaks out because all the like Tarkin soldiers had or the the Tarkin soldiers had come in, um, and at the very beginning of this chapter, Jill's like, "Oh my god, I'm freaking out!" She's running to the rock, and they're like, "Oh crap, Eustace got thrown into the stable." Yeah, the very first thing, which out like nowhere, the way C.S. Lewis does like when I'm writing these summaries, I always feel bad because the way C.S. Lewis does his cliffhangers makes all the next chapters start in the middle without having any reference for what's actually happening. So you just have Jill running, but then like she's looking back and just happens to see Eustace getting murdered yeah. uh, unaddressed until the very end of the chapter. Or right. really unaddressed. He just, we know that's what happened because we see the after effects. Right. Um, with, with all intents and purposes, like, they know that Tash is in this barn, in this stable, and he just got thrown in there. So all we can assume in this page is that he was just consumed or something. Luckily, we find out later, not quite the case. But, like, it's just, you're like, oh, I guess Eustace is gone. All right. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he really does set the stakes right at the beginning of this chapter. And yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I do like, to a certain extent, maybe not for a children's book, but I do like the idea that the heroes don't win. Yeah. Like, they, like the point is not they are going to, going to physically overcome the enemy that they're setting yeah. The last point battle is that yeah. regardless of whether they win or lose in this life, Aslan wins at the end of it. Right. There the the last battle means an end for everything. Yeah. The like, it's almost like you could say 
the last enemy that will be defeated is death. Mm. I think that's a Harry Potter line. I think that I think J.K. Rowling came up with that on her own. It definitely didn't quote the Bible on it. No, 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 for sure. No. Uh, that it's so funny hearing that line and people being like, "Wow, that's beautiful poetry." And it's like the same thing of like we both went to UT and like on the bottom of the UT tower it says like, "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free." And like, how many students are like? That's a great philosophical quote. And you're like, that's Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, this is literally the Bible. But what are you talking about? But alas, we see Eustace get murked. Jill is upset. And she's crying so hard that she can't even shoot an arrow off because her bowstring is wet. Uh, and then, you know. Which was a great detail. That was very important for the chapter. Glad that we glad that we got that established. And then Poggin, you know, just to make sure that we also know more stakes is like, hey, BT dubs. The other dwarves are now shooting arrows at us and the Calarmines. So, like, duck. Um, and then the, you know, dwarves. Dwarves got a dwarf. They get a few more racist shouts in, uh, both toward oh, yeah. the Calarmines and the Narnians. Uh, so it's like, you know, like, stay consistent, I guess. The dwarves are for the dwarves. Uh, and they're not going to be taken into, they're not going to be taken captive. They're not going to be ruled by anyone. Uh, and they're going to fight till the death, which they do. Man, what a this this chapter really does capture everything that's crazy about this book, with the exception of like we no longer have shift, but we like, don't have shift. You, you get the weird nihilism, you get race like racial slurs just written yeah. out in this children's book. You get weird sexism. You get yeah. the demon god. Yep. You get <laughs> you get. Your hero is dying. You get <laughs> the entire setting being a stable in the woods for some reason. It's and, like this chapter really does cover it all. And you get every main character except for one throughout all of the books. <laughs> yep. So, you know, you work with what you got. Yeah. But dwarves, I guess we're missing Reba Cheap. If this chapter had Reba Cheap, it would really be. He's already, he's already oh, ahead of him, man. Well, yeah, he's in Aslan's country. He doesn't even need to be in this weird purgatory situation. No, he's cool. He's chilling right now. Like, dude rode his little boat above the flower wave into the sunset. So, like, yeah, he's chilling. Uh, I don't remember if we meet Reaper Cheap later or not. I hope we do. I, I hope miss- so. That'd be kind of a bummer if he didn't, because he was a really main character. And, and he's and he's, and he's, tight with, he's tight with Eustace. So, like, yeah. I hope I hope I. I feel like we will, but I don't remember, honestly. Yeah, I don't remember at all. The dwarves, they're fighting, you know, they're they're doing whatever they can. And it doesn't last long because they get quickly overpowered and they're yeah. either dead, gone, and we don't know what happened to them, or they're being thrown into the stable to become, uh, you know, offerings to Tash. Which I had a thought as I was reading that section of I kind of wish instead of 11 bound dwarves, it had been 12, just as like a nice little wink to Disney. But yeah, it was like you could have either have seven dwarves, you could have like 12 and, you know, make it like a more clean number. 11's a weird, but, you know, throw a number out there. Not everything has to be symbolic. Um, but everything has to be symbolic. This is allegory. This is allegory, Kel. This isn't J.R.R. Tolkien. This is C.S. Lewis. Clive is all about allegory. Uh, but yeah. So, I mean, yeah. speaking of allegory, I mean, well, we can we can talk about chanting for Tash first, but what happens right after that is very direct. Oh yeah. <laughs> you could almost say not even allegory anymore. Yeah, no, go for it. Because like the the chanting for Tash, they're just like, sweet, we don't have to put on a show anymore about Tashland. Yeah. They and just summoning a demon god. Like uh, they stopped the stop the show. But yeah, it is a weird aside, but I also enjoyed like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Uh so as they all retreat before the this next final battle, because every battle is the final battle, um they retreat back to this rock. And just as an aside, we find out, oh, there's this stream of water coming from that rock that uh, refreshes them. And they just have a nice little moment, some drinking with their hands, some drinking with their mouths, almost like you're smushing together like three different biblical stories into one where Moses 
strikes the rock and brings water. We don't need to deal with the whether that was Moses following orders or not side of that. But the idea of God bringing water from the rock to satisfy the people stranded in the wilderness is is poignant. And then the streams of living water side of things, like yeah. Jesus' provision, and that's also an Isaiah 55 reference, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then also the uh, just hands and mouths situation of uh, yeah. of Gideon and who is fit to go into battle. Yeah, it is. Yeah, sorry, my son is like looking in the like doorway right now, just going, "Daddy, Daddy." For for the listeners, Kel was just waving in the distance, and I had to physically acknowledge that as well. Uh, but no, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's funny because I feel like this is C.S. Lewis being like, ah, oh, crap. Like I needed, I need some more biblical allegories and allusions and stories and references here, but we're almost done with the book and I'm about to kill all these characters. So, uh, they found a rock with water in it in one paragraph and it yeah. has nothing to do with the dwarves no. and it has nothing, like it's not going to be acknowledged it's going to move immediately into like, well, we're all probably going to die. Yeah. If they it's hadn't just, had this at all, it would not change a single thing about how the flow of this chapter went. No, it's so fun. I, I legit think that CS Lewis is just like, I got to get as many of these as I can and go. Yep. No, for sure. It's unnecessary, but I mean, I appreciated thinking about those things in the, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, yeah, that story is a good thing about Jesus. Yeah. Um, it's just like, as it's far like as the, the actual story that C.S. Lewis is telling, not really necessary. I feel like it's the like, C.S. Lewis is the kind of author that you'd be like reading this and being like, oh, they were terrified and they were all being pushed towards the door, but there was two or more of them. And so they were like a cord, not easily broken, but they were still heading towards this door in their final doom. It's like, wait, what? It'd be funny if he started doing more directly like that. Like that's the clunky like college Christian author. Oh, 100%. Like it it feels very much like a kid writing his like, you know, AP essay or something like that and trying to throw in quotes where it's like, you know, when I was dealing with this situation, I was afraid. It really made me think of the quote, we only have fear itself to fear. It's like that was almost the right quote. But also, it didn't have anything to do with your story. You know, some could say the spring semester of senior year is the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> so true. So I true. Mean... <laughs> C.S. Lewis, like, he's a, you know, for for how, like, it's so funny because, like, in how delightful his writing is elsewhere and, like, how poetic his language can be. He comes in so heavy-handed sometimes and, like, like ham-fisted. We're just like, all right. Sweet. I feel like if anything has stood out over this whole reread, it's how not subtle C.S. Lewis is. No, which is funny when you read things like, you know, the like the Great Divorce or the Problem of mm -hmm. Pain or, you know, Mere Christianity where it's like, you're so great with your words. Yeah. But I guess like part of why those things get brought out so much is that he is so like obvious with what he's trying to do yeah, in those situations. And it is kids. And it's easy for like pastor types to go and pull something like that, like, oh well C.S. Lewis talks about this. And so like right. the images do stick with you. How many times is a pastor, scene, like how many times has the pastor used that rock line? In, a, in an illusion or in a story, like in a, in a, you know, when they're talking about Jesus being, you know, living water and like fulfilling Quinch, he's like, in the middle of the last battle, when all of our heroes are, you know, dying, they find their, you know, greatest thirst quenched by the, you know, living streams from the rock. Yeah. Like, pray. Like, <laughs> it really is. I mean, it was made for that. C.S. Lewis, I don't think C.S. Lewis realized what he was handing to a generation of preachers, but... As, these, these, these books are just meant for sermon illustrations. Yeah. 
It's just a, it's just a guide. They really, I bet someone has made a C.S. Lewis sermon illustration guide. I bet that book exists. I'm pretty sure that's just the Austin Stone preachers, but like. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, you could just go search their website, but. (laughs) But all that to say, they then leave this watery rock stream uh, and immediately are like, well, we're all probably going to die. We're all going to get forced through that door. Looks more like a, you know, a mouth coming to engulf us. And I was like, oh, cool. I guess, you know, we're, there's nothing we can do. And Jules like, nope. Like, going to be dining in Aslan's country tonight, which is like a very Valhalla-esque, like, mindset. It's like, we it's fight He doesn't nay. say no. He says nay. Which he is says nay. Point. Nay, fair friend. Because the has got to get one last pun in from his, yeah. his unicorn. Just in he... case you thought we'd forgotten about the horse and its boy, we can... Uh... Just in case. Nay, we have not. <laughs> uh, nay, says uh, yeah. I. But, uh, you know, they, they're like, well, we're all going to die, so we might as well do this. And then Rashida Tarkin is like, hey, we'll take the you know the boars and the dogs and the unicorn because we can put them to work in our you know enforced servitude. Uh, we're going to you know put the boar in a cage and the dogs in the kennels and the unicorn. We're going to chop your horn off and make you a you know horse like a cart horse. Uh, and, but like the eagle, the children, the king, y'all are too much problem. We're just going to throw you to Tash. Yeah, it's funny that the eagle does not get any kind of offer. I don't know why that is. The eagle is uh, too rambunctious, and like, what are you gonna do? Like, attach a cart to an eagle? You gonna, you know, you gonna put a leash on it? Like, let it fly around in a circle? Like, eagles can't be left. You know, they're they're too troublesome. But- I mean, the the Tisrock may he live forever has many gardens and maybe some of those have roofs on them and they could live. He's got, in a, he's got a nice Tisrock may he live forever aviary. Like, yeah. Yeah. The Tisrock may live forever really loves like those little bits of luxury. We only have so many more pages for the Tisrock may he live forever to acknowledge his divine presence. So. I mean, I think we maybe pass the points where the Tisrog may live forever can really come up because now yeah. we're in Because we're about to go through the stable door officially. Yeah. But uh, alas, we begin the, you know, the, the la- like this, it's, this is one of those weird statements again from C.S. Lewis because the, they're like, their only response was growls. And you're like, yeah, tell them beasts. <coughs> and then Rashida Tarkin is like, fine, kill all the beasts, take all the ones on two legs alive. And then which he they says, don't do. Which they don't do. But then he says, then the last battle of the last king of Narnia began. What have they been doing this whole time, Chase? Yeah, the last five chapters have all been the last battle. Like, just because the fighting starts and stops doesn't mean it's a different battle. They've been in the oh. same place on the same day for the entire time. Right. It's they're they're also in the midst of fighting right now they just went to a like they just retreated to a more fortified position yeah it's like like, repositioning within the same battle was not starting a new battle but i guess it's now begun whatever but all that to say the battle has now officially begun according to c.s lewis and how he's got to let us know about you know why warfare can be hard uh, well, they have spears now, Cal. I don't know if you knew that, but spears are hard to find now. Not spears. They fly now. Uh, but yeah, they've got spears, which means they can poke you from a long way away. You know, longer than your sword or your unicorn horn can reach, yeah. or your uh, or your boar tusks, or your boar tusks, and it's tough. And so yeah. you have to, you know, it, it makes it impossible. But then he immediately was like. But it's not that bad when you're using every muscle as opposed to, you know, only the few that you were using previously. Ducking under a spear here, leaping over one there. It's whatever. Like, you know, because you're you're just, you're alert. Yeah. Which is funny to caveat, given that everyone still dies. Yeah. Because immediately, (laughs) like, again, he does this several times and where, where he's just like, all right. Now they're gone because, like, immediately after this, it goes to Tyrion's perspective, and it's like, 
well, he was fighting. And then all of a sudden he looked uh, and saw that like Jill was being dragged into the stable by her hair and that Jewel was going down. But he didn't have time to, to think about any of that because he was fighting for his life. So all he could do is take his mini down with him. And all he could see was that he was finally engaged with Tarkin and they were right in the doorway of the stable. But realizing that he is far outnumbered in this scenario and you know, while it would be super satisfying to watch him fight Rashida Tarkin one-on-one, he decides for a different tactic. He drops his sword, he ducks under Rashida Tarkin, he grabs him, and then drags them both into the stable door saying, all right, like, you wanted to meet Tash, come meet him. Like, here you go. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you know you're going to go out either way, take out the main guy. <laughs> Might as well, you know, bad. why not? Have a little fun with it. Yeah. And so they dive yeah. in. Informed tackle. Yeah, it was, a, it was a solid It was a solid tackle. Uh, I don't know if this was a hip drop tackle that's trying to be banned in the NFL or not. It's getting, you know, people injured. But, you know, they, they swing through the door. And you see the loyalty of the of the Calamines immediately disappear because they slam the door behind them. There's a deafening light. And they're like, well, Tash, Tash, he's our band. If he can't kill you, someone will, right? Probably. But uh, they start changing again, and Tyrion has no idea where he is. He's, you know, looking around, and he's expecting it to be dark because it's the middle of the night, and they're in a stable. And yeah. nope, it's actually really bright around, and he's confused, and he doesn't know who he is or where they are. Which I'm sure I remember a couple chapters ago, there was like a flash of like green light inside yeah. the stable the green flash i mean yeah this is just uh tash casting casting Avada Kedavra over and over again um i just am not <laughs> harry potter come to die uh, but yeah what is I'm I'm not entirely sure if it gets explained later or not. What's happening here? Like, what's the actual like teleportation side of this? So, does it ever get explained? Yes. This is a spoiler alert for the next chapter too. What I what I believe is happening, and they that I think they explain this is basically the stable more or less functions as like like a transportation into like the beginning of the like afterlife more or less which is why like tash is there to like claim victims and then in a moment we'll see the kings and queens of narnia because as we have said on this podcast before but you know once more heavy 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 spoiler alert they're all dead uh and so them going into the stable they're all dead now too. They have been killed and they are now moving into Aslan's country. Uh, it's like a weird semi purgatory. Or I mean, I guess you could just call it a disembodied state. Like right. they're, hanging kind of, out. they're the martyrs who are just hanging out waiting for uh It is the in-between place between like them being alive in Narnia slash the real world, and then them being in Aslan's country, i.e. like new heaven and new earth. So take that for what you will. C.S. Lewis is Anglican. He is not Catholic, but Anglican is basically just Catholic light. So could be purgatory. Purgatory crew, but I mean, I also don't know what exactly... He thought about that stuff. It's just That's an interesting. True. I mean, this is this is a Harry Potter train moment. Yeah, it, it is literally like it, this is the you know the King's Cross station, the Great White, like light everywhere. But uh, he is you know looking around and he's he sees Rashida Tarkin and Rashida Tarkin is cowering in fear, pointing ahead of them, and lo and behold, we see the actual Tash now with a vulture's head, four arms, croaking a terrible voice, like, you've summoned me, like, now I'm here, what do you have to say? It's like, this is a terrifying, like, scene. Yeah. And goes and snatches up 
Rashida Tarkin uh, picks him up. This is like a worm. Yeah. And just like throws him under his arm. Uh, like briefcase. Like a little, like a little light briefcase. He's just heading to work. Right. And that work is just it's evil. And you know, he's that he's in the business of misery, as Paramore would say. And business is yeah, I was about to say, is Haley Williams here? What's happening? Uh, and so like we just see this horrifying creature, but then I love this moment that it's not Aslan that speaks. Mm-hmm. Like, because generally you'd have like, you know, Aslan with his commanding voice come in and speak and, you know, evil is dissipated. But this is presumably King Peter, uh, and the like rest of the Narnian crew. Um, because like before Ta- before Tash can make his way towards Tyrion. We read, Begone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place in the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea. And when he vanishes, we see seven kings and queens before him with glittering clothes, beautiful and male, and having swords drawn. And, and, and it's this you know really powerful scene. And we come to realize that these are all of the Pevensies slash their relations. Yeah. Um, we see Diggory and Polly. We see Peter and Edmund and Lucy. We see Jill and Eustace, like having previously been thrown into the into the stable, are now in finely dressed attire and clean and beautiful. I wonder, do you think C.S. Lewis killed off Susan just so that he could have the number seven? You know, there's a chance for it. I'm not going to put it past him because he... As we've discussed already on this pod, dude likes an allegory. He really dude does. Likes, dude, dude, dude likes some clean symbology. Seven is a holy number. However, Tyrion is entering the fray. So, you know, it makes it eight. Yeah. But, I mean, he could have gotten to 12 and done like a 12 disciples thing. He easily he could have added in like, you know, put Susan in and you have eight kings and queens plus Tyrion is nine. You plus Caspian. Caspian, uh, you have um, who I forget their names now from the horse and their boy. Oh uh, yeah, Shasta and uh, what's her, and uh, Ar Arvis, Arvis, yeah, Arv Arvis. It's been a while. You have those two. You could add in. You easily could have Reepicheep be a greeter. You know, um, you could have gotten usher, there an usher into the in into Aslan's country, as you will, right. There's you could find options, right? Yeah. Like you could have had, uh, you know, Frank the cabbie, and like the uh, first king and queen of Narnia. First that king, totally Narnia. reasonable. Like you could have made more. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's a seven thing. Maybe it's he just wanted to make a statement about you know materialism, and uh, he maybe he got really you know butt hurt by like. Some of the people, or like some of the women he knew who were like real into fashion. And it, you know, I don't know. It was really upsetting for him. I don't know. But alas, he, we see seven kings and queens before him. And Tyrion recognizes Jill at first, the youngest queen. And then is like, wait a minute, that's Jill. But she's also not Jill. She's. She seems greater, but also she seems older, but also younger, and and she seems more beautiful and clean and strong and and magnificent, and then recognizes the same things about Eustace, the youngest king, and immediately feels insecure because he's like, oh man, like I just came from battle, I'm covered in blood and guts and dust, and he looks down, he's like, oh never mind, like I'm dressed for a feast at Care Paravel, which Chase. I don't know if you were aware of this. It's not like the stuffy clothes that we would have in, you know, boring old England that would be uncomfortable. It doesn't just look nice. It feels nice. Yeah. These are these are t-shirt comfort, but this is like a this is like a snuggie with a crown, you know? Like Snuggie with a crown is really it's Snuggie with a Crown. It's, uh, it's the album that we've been waiting for. But it's. I just love that he feels the necessity to throw that in. Yeah, because again, like the act, the 
picture, this, the symbolism, I mean, again, not very well, well shrouded, but like the symbolism, the picture itself is, is really nice. The like coming into that, like yeah. steer presence and feeling like you're exposed, but then realizing that you've already been, been cleaned is like a nice picture to yeah. like enter into this more gospel like, Yeah what the point of this whole thing has been working towards yeah. moment is yeah. uh, is a really nice like thought because there's it's, nothing there's not like a oh well he has to go change his clothes and now he's ready to be in, in right he's already ready yeah i just it's funny to me that c.s lewis was like every kid reading this is gonna have the same question are they comfortable yeah of course. And she was just like, don't worry, guys. They're so comfortable and they also look so swaggy. It's great. Yeah. They look great. They feel great. And that's really look what great. They- feel great. Play great. You know, they're yeah. ready to they're ready to win the Super Bowl here. Yeah. Uh, just like the Cowboys. Just like the Cowboys. You know, if only. Look, dude, we, we're reading fantasy literature right now. We can dream. Like <laughs> We hey, can, this is not the time to talk about it, but I'll let you know. I started uh, Brandon Sanderson's one of his books last night. So, which one? Oh, what's the really, really thick books? Series? Way of Kings. You yeah. you started uh, Stormlight Archive. I guess so. I didn't actually look at the cover. I asked. I borrowed it from a friend and uh, and read both of the prologues last night. Excellent. So I yeah. assume it's that one. If that's the yeah. first one. There are two prologues in that book, so that is yeah, true. And that makes sense. Uh, get, just, I'm glad that you chose that one to dive into first because they are humongous. Uh, yeah, they're they awesome. Are, they're, so, I, I heard good things, and I decided I want to dive into Maybe some story. dense ones. It, it looks like it would take years to read. <laughs> you say that until you start just cranking through. But this is not a Brandon Sanderson pod. No. Uh, but Alaska. we said we're reading fantasy, and that made me think of it. And you know, why not interrupt this podcast? It's just why not? We do it anyway. It. <laughs> and we've only got a few left, a few chapters left to interrupt, man. Yeah. So, uh, but Tyrion looks around. He sees himself in his comfortable, beautiful clothes, and Jill says, "Hey, let me introduce you to my friend over here. This is Peter, the High King over all Narnia." And he's like, "I know who that is. Don't worry. Like this is." This is my guy. I recognize him from my dreams, which is not weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's it's like, weird. it's a king thing. It's a king thing, right? And he's like, hi, king, you are welcome to me. And then they share some smooches on the yeah. cheap as greetings. Uh, sure, sure, if you say so. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, and then hi, king Peter's like, hey, BT dubs, for the readers who are, you know, here, you may be doing the math in your head and you're like, wait, this is confusing. Like, Shouldn't there only be four Pevensies plus, you know, Eustace and Jill? Why are there seven? And he's like, well, two of those are actually really old people. It's Polly and Diggory. Remember the last book that I wrote and the first one that we did in this podcast? Well, it's those two. They used to be young. They used to be young. And then they used to be old. And then now they're 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 glorified. Nice and nice. They're in their resurrection bodies, Chase. Yeah, uh, and so he's like, "Hey, BT Dubs, here's the like Lady Polly and Lord Diggory, who you know were here with the first trees of Narnia, and when you know the beasts began to talk, uh, and you know Diggory's got a golden beard flowing. It's like that's great. And then Tyrion then is like, "Wait a minute, so there was four plus two, that would have been six, but now there's add two, that's eight. Shouldn't there be one more?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, Susan." Uh, <laughs> Like her, she's she's no longer a friend of Narnia. Like which we don't talk feels, about Susan. Feels like she got kicked out of like the Duggar family or like uh, of oh, like yeah. where it's like she's not a friend of the family anymore. Like she's not a friend of Narnia. And like they're like we anytime we try to invite her to come to you know our Narnian club get-togethers, she scoffs and's like, "Wow, y'all are so funny." Like thinking about childish things, and you know, I have more important things to think about, like nylons and lipsticks and party invitations. Yeah, which how how rude of C.S. Lewis! <laughs> this is such a dunk on Susan and materialism, and like, and just I mean, being like, hey, you want? She likes looking nice, 
and go and like hanging out with people. Um, she likes hanging out with them and not us, and therefore she bad. Yeah, and you know what else? She bad because her? red lip and and no more club, no girl. She's not club a friend of these- because she wanted to grow up, and then she's gonna realize that you know she wanted to be this age her whole life. Do you know what happened to Susan, guys? She was in Narnia for dozens of years, and then went back to being a teenager, and then had to grow up in the real world. Her life is weird. Yeah, but like, alas, she forgot all about all of that. I guess so. Um, which is also crazy to think that you would forget decades of your life. But the, uh, I mean, the indictment of of like, I guess uh, appearance culture is really like yes. he gets a good quip in through Polly commenting on Susan, basically saying. Like she, when she was younger, wanted so bad to be a certain age. And then once she reached that age, she was going to spend the rest of her life trying to stay that age. And that's why lipstick is bad. There you go. And so, so if you learn anything from this book, just don't put on lipstick. Yeah. Makeup is evil. So are clothes. Um, go to parties. And so are parties. Unless you're coming to our parties, in which case they're they're really good for you, and you should definitely go. The only parties you should go to are held by Dionysus uh, and the you know nymphs in the forest, where they have their wine and you know definitely nothing debaucherous. Yeah, except for even though his name God, is who is the god of debauchery, but like other than that, don't worry about it. You know, because as Peter says, let's not talk about it now. Look. Here are some lovely fruit trees. That is <laughs> that's that. <laughs> that's the se- for the listeners who are not reading along. That is the second to last sentence of this book of this chapter. Is <laughs> well, don't let's talk about that now," said Peter. "Look, here are some lovely fruit trees. Let us taste them." And then, for the first time, Tyrion looked about him and realized how very queer this adventure was. And that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> In a chapter where all of your characters, spoiler alert, just died, they're dead, confirmed now. They were dead previously, but now they're all dead, 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 except for Susan, who's not dead physically, just spiritually. She's just spiritually condemned. Yeah. The way that you're going to end this chapter is just, look at these fruit trees. Isn't this adventure weird? Oh, look at that. Huh. <laughs> it's just over. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a move, man. It's wild. It's like an uncomfortable parent trying to change the subject when their kid asks a weird question and then just moving on. Hey, where do babies come from? Hey, y'all want to get McDonald's? Oh, uh, look at this cool book. Go. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 so weird like why bring any of this up like because as we're going to discover in the next few chapters again spoiler alert, they're all dead they died on the train the train crashed why bring susan up at all yeah like why end any of this if you had ended with them moving into aslan's country on this chapter and them see these trees, there's kind of a sweet, like, cyclical moment here, but that's not what it is. These are just normal fruit trees they're seeing as a way to avoid addressing that Susan is going to be condemned in her sin. Yeah, it's... And, like, if you really, really, really want to make Susan go to hell, why not wait and let Aslan tell some eloquent story later about how she has is still in the mortal plane. These are the warnings that she should heed, but like she wrote in another piece of scripture where he says, be God. I never knew you. Like, yeah, I just, Susan shows up in some nylon and some red lipstick and Aslan's like, who are you? The Susan I know is in like chainmail and like holding swords and they have crowns on and she's just in a regular dress. <laughs> He's like, how 
dare you. I set um, out your chainmail intentionally. <laughs> your bow was right there. And the string is dry. Polly made sure of it. <laughs> she hasn't been crying anywhere near your bow. And you just left it there? And instead, you, what, got dressed up? <laughs> Clearly a goat. Sheep wear chain mail. <laughs> I just, there's so much where you just go like, these were choices that you made. Yeah, it's kind of a thing you gotta just throw your hands up like, okay, well, that's where we're at. Too, you know? Like, I guess she doesn't get invited into heaven, even though she was a main, main character. Yeah. But whatever. You and know, like really, I don't know. It's summer on Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, I mean, we we noted the little bit of uh, foreshadowing in Caspian. Yeah, it's uh, it's really jarring. Just kind of it's abrupt that quickly too. You get you get one page addressing the fate of Susan because I don't believe they address it the rest of the book. I believe this is it. And that's all. Which, well, like, this is a major gripe with a lot of people from this book. Yeah. Especially female people who are like, wait, you took one of the only, like, female characters in these books. And she's the one that is now cast aside. Yeah, she doesn't get to hang out because she likes boys now. What? <laughs> <laughs> Written by this man who was famously single until he was like fifty-five. Maybe, maybe that's why he condemned her because he's he's getting scored by all these like high fashion women. <laughs> I mean, it's a very nineteen fifties man complaint. Like these women aren't classy like the like the ones of my youth. They wore potato sacks and they knew how to act like a lady. Yeah, this is very much a man who grew up in the Great Depression being frustrated that uh, fashion has moved on. He's like, when I was fighting in the bunkers in Germany, there was no one in dresses. <laughs> Except for Steven, and that was just for good laughs. <laughs> in that one time that I was hanging out with Bacchus and the wood nymphs. <laughs> but that could have been a dream. <laughs> oh gosh but yeah chase that's how this chapter ends yeah Ever that's this chapter we are you know as of the next chapter i believe we're going to begin like moving truly further up and further in so yeah. we're gonna you know find out you know what happens to the dwarves we're gonna happen like we're gonna see you know the new heaven and new narnia uh, we're gonna, you know, go. We're gonna go all the way through. But you know, do you have anything to add uh, before we close out? I don't think so. We're we're kind of in the end stretch now that we're through the stable door. We're through it. Yeah, but but also we're gonna stay in this stable purgatory for at least one more chapter. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to know what happens to the dwarves and the stable. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what am I thinking? Is this the stable? Very important to me. Do you think the stable, because he put so much emphasis on the stable, it took the place of Susan? Like, <laughs> you know, that makes sense because they both start with S. Being there, you could only have one. Yeah, you only had room for so many characters. The stable is arguably more important than Susan, and that's a bummer. Well, he's got to redeem the stable. <laughs> the stable was so bad; it was a real Edmund. And then yeah. it really became a Lucy. But definitely not a Susan. Oh, well, you would never want the Sable to be a Susan. God, lazy Susan. Sable looked terrible in nylon. <laughs> Have you ever seen a Sable with lipstick on? It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, really, it just seems to say Everyone knows it's still a Sable. <laughs> They're like, oh, I bet Tash is in that Sable. You <laughs> go in and Tash is wearing lipstick. It's like... <laughs> What kind of party is this? Don't worry about it. Bacchus is here. He's in the corner. Uh, oh, we digress. On, on that note, Chase, we are, you know, a few chapters 
from the end of the last battle. I think we have four more. I think six. there's 16 chapters in this. So we yep. got four more, which means maybe by the end of 2024, we will have finished it. Uh, and maybe. Maybe. I don't want to make I don't want to make promises that I can't keep, <laughs> but surely, you know, we will be done, but we are, we are moving and grooving and, uh, we will see all of y'all soon. Yeah. Chase, before we close, can you let our listeners know where they can find us and, and how they can help spread the, you know, the, the Susan cheer. Yeah, if you want party invites, uh, you should go <laughs> follow at Chronicles of Podcasts on Instagram and make sure you're uh, subscribed to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and yeah, tell your friends, uh, go back and re-listen to the whole series. We're, we always have a whole, whole Narnia reread. If in you, podcast form if and that's a resource ever, that's just waiting for you yeah. to go and go and enjoy as much as you want if you ever found yourself saying man i have like 150 hours free and i really have a hankering for some people being cynical about c.s lewis and the chronicles of narnia yeah we're here for you. it's perfect it's exactly what you've been waiting for and waiting for you to catch up with us next time that we decide to record a podcast <laughs> New year, new podcast, man. Look at us go. <laughs> what if we just started new over? Year, new year, <laughs> no, Susan. That's why it's taken so long to get through is because we start over every January 1st. It's tough, man. Uh, but Susan doesn't, so it's hard. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, Chase, we'll see you later, buddy. See ya. The other day when we were in the playoff... Courtney was like, you, so like, you actually, do you want to watch this one? And I was like, Courtney, this is the biggest game we have been in since I have actually been a legitimate Longhorn fan and our biggest game since 2009. Yeah. Going to watch this game. I have conceded on a lot of them. I don't even know what the score ended up being. It was really close. It was 37-31, and we had a cha- we we had four plays from the twelve yard line uh, with like time expiring. Just couldn't get in the end zone, so it was tough. But it was a good game. Shame. I mean, I'm really proud of how far we got this year. I think we definitely overachieved, and it was like uh, it's a great sign for the team. Yeah, and I mean, what a great way to close the chapter of the Big Twelve. <laughs>